Damo, you big sweet tooth. Yes, MP, you chocoholic. So naughty but nice, we're a hit at the Wellness Summit and I want more. Well, how does 20 recipes in their free ebook Heavenly Healthy Desserts sound, MP? Jeepers, Damo, I'm loving that. Or you can hop on down to their brand new cafe, Selection Cafe in South Melbourne and receive 10% off your favourite healthy desserts. Woohoo! To do so, go to sonaughtybutnice.com forward slash couch and fill in your details to receive your free ebook and discount voucher. That's www.sonaughtybutnice.com forward slash couch. So naughty but nice, delicious nutrition. Thewellnesscouch.com streaming wellness into your lives the real food real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health we get real on current research debunk food myths and educate you on how to just eat real food your host steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist is one of australia's leading sports nutritionists passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes smoothies and sweet potato if you love the show then please leave us a review on itunes Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome to the Real Food Real. Today on the show I speak with Professor Peter Howe. Peter is Professor of Nutrition Research and Director of the Clinical Nutrition Research Centre at the University of Newcastle and an adjunct professor at both the University of Adelaide and the University of South Australia. Peter is recognised as an authority on the cardiovascular and metabolic health benefits of omega-3. And today on the show, Peter and I discuss fish oil and omega-3s, calls for testing and the importance of fish in our diets. Hi, Peter, and thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Steph. It's great to have you here. And as it's your first time on the show, I'd love you to start with a little bit of background information about yourself uh, and certainly your career to date. And then we'll jump into what you're up to later next month in Melbourne. Okay, well, I've had a long and varied career in research, um, Steph, and uh, I've basically been interested in the um, physiology of um, the cardiovascular system, cardiovascular health. Um, I was involved very early on in research on uh, uh, drug management of high blood pressure, uh, but for most of my career, I've been looking at the effects of diet and, and specifically the active components, the, the nutrients in our diet that can deliver specific health benefits. So drilling down and understanding the, the mechanisms of uh, bioactives um, that can be important for our health and uh, reducing the risk of disease and uh, particularly with a um, increasing emphasis on the, the need to look at how to maintain optimal health and fitness um, into advancing age. So um, omega-3s have uh, been a, uh, an important focus for me for some 30 years now, and uh, so I guess I go a long way back in that area of research. But a, a lot of the early research that uh, provided a, a foundation for understanding uh, the health benefits of uh, omega-3 fatty acids was actually undertaken uh, by researchers in Australia. Um, so we've had a lot to contribute in that area, and I think we still do. And uh, there's certainly an increasing need for um, better understanding of the um, potential benefits and um, uh, better research to define those benefits. 
Absolutely. So before we discuss Omega-3 in detail, just tell us what you're up to in Melbourne in October. Well, I'm speaking at the Blackmores Institute Symposium and uh, giving an update on omega-3 fatty acids. And by that, I mean the long-chain omega-3s that come from marine sources that have always been associated with the fish consumption. But now, of course, we think about fish oil, we think about krill oil, uh, calamari oil, other potential sources, and um, how the benefits of the omega-3s might best be derived to help, as I said, optimise our health. Um, My focus has been very much on uh, um, the cardiovascular system and heart health, but uh, I'm interested in the importance of um, the circulation and the ability for certain nutrients, including omega-3s, to optimise the circulation of blood um, through the tissues of the body and particularly the impact that that has in the brain and on brain function and helping to maintain um, cognitive performance and uh, optimising mood. And I think the evidence is building that there's a role for omega-3s there. But we need at the same time to get a handle on how omega-3s are going to deliver those benefits, recognising that um, it's not a case of one shoe fits all. Um, that when we're talking about requirements, we recognise that the uh, impact of uh, omega-3s, whether it be through fish consumption or supplementation, will vary between individuals. So we need to really know uh, what an individual's omega-3 status is. And um, some time ago, there was a great concept introduced um, called the omega-3 index, and this refers to the measurement of the omega-3 levels in red blood cells. So this is a fairly straightforward uh, measurement uh, that could be undertaken, say, once every six months and uh, would give a pretty uh, good indication of somebody's uh, uptake over a period of time and incorporation into tissues in the body. In fact, it's a good reflection of the the levels of of omega-3s that accumulate in the heart. Um, But this is one relatively simple way of um, being able to uh, get um, an indirect measure of that simply by taking a, a blood sample and doing this test. And uh, some time back, over 10 years ago, um, when the concept was first um, promoted, uh, it was uh, done so to show that uh, if they looked at the evidence at the time for risk of cardiovascular disease, people with a low level of omega-3s, below 4%, for example, were at high risk, whereas those um, who had an omega-3 index and this is the level of the two omega-3s, EPA and DHA, in the red blood cells, if that was over 8%, then they were regarded as having a fairly good protection or reduced cardiovascular risk. Um, That's, I think, a particularly useful concept, and unfortunately it hasn't been pursued, and uh, the fact that it hasn't has led to, I think, or contributed to some of the increased confusion over dose requirements and potential benefits, 
even the benefits uh, as they've been assessed in um, controlled clinical trials, where once again, we have a situation where people have been uh, uh, randomly allocated to an omega-3 supplement or a placebo um, without necessarily knowing what their basal levels were, um, let alone what kind of um, uh, levels of omega-3s they were ultimately achieving as a result of the supplementation. And as you can appreciate, those people who might have had a high a basal level of omega-3s from their diet or for some other reason initially um, are less likely to see an increase in their status and a, a accompanying benefit than those who might have started from a, a low basal level um, be, uh, and then had the benefit of the supplementation. And I think it's very important that we understand this, that this is a major limitation in the research and also in our ability to be able to advise individuals of how much omega-3s they should be taking. It would be like prescribing a, a drug for um, uh, managing cholesterol or blood pressure without ever measuring somebody's cholesterol or blood pressure levels initially. And uh, that is why <clears throat> I'm putting the case that it's important that we look at the benefit of, of using this um, a potentially useful marker of omega-3 status in an individual and then see how that relates um, to the um, improvement of, um, of health status um, when people increase their intake of omega-3s accordingly um, and whether it be by consuming fish or consuming fish oil supplements. At the end of the day, we want to see the omega-3 levels, um, uh, as reflected by this blood biomarker, um, at a level that would be consistent with good health. And as I said, we've already got an indication of what sort of levels are likely to be consistent with cardiovascular health and reduced cardiovascular risk. We know that the same concept is also likely to apply to some of the other benefits, including anti-inflammatory benefits and uh, possible benefits uh, for mental health and uh, cognitive function. So I think uh, we ought to really start focusing on the biomarker, both in terms of um, future research and in terms of patient management. I absolutely agree. I think the Omega Index is something that... Um, you know, most people are going to be really interested in because they're going to want to know their personal status um, and obviously what they can do to improve that. So is it available anywhere? Well, not at this stage. Mm. Uh, people are able to send a, um, a, a blood spot um, uh, taken with a simple finger prick um, uh, uh, over uh, to by mail it to um, Europe or to the U.S., uh, to have the um, result analysed. But uh, that's actually not as um, uh, simple or um, reliable a, a means as taking a blood sample and measuring the level directly in a fresh blood sample. Yeah. And it would be so much easier if this test were available as part of a, a routine check that um, GPs undertake when they're assessing somebody's cardiovascular health status. So, for example, if 
you know, when blood lipids, uh, cholesterol levels or, or blood sugar is being measured, um, it would uh, uh, not be a, a, a major impost to include uh, in that assessment a measure of the red blood cell omega-3s. But um, it's not being done at the moment because it's not being uh, promoted or requested. Yeah, I think you raise a good point there and certainly it's something that we hope to see in the near future, um, particularly because we, we know the, the benefits of um, omega-3 uh, are huge, as you've mentioned, with the certainly the heart disease and stroke benefits, but the inflammation and mood uh, disorders, I mean, that's absolutely huge in terms of offering a natural intervention that we seem to be potentially missing out on at this stage. Yeah, well, that's where we need some more research. Um, but at this stage, um, it's the evidence for the association is, is not really there. We have some preliminary evidence from research that we've conducted in Adelaide uh, that's being published now, um, looking at the effects of um, omega-3 supplementation in a variety of uh, um, mental health conditions from uh, children uh, and adolescents with ADHD uh, through to um, uh, elderly people who've been diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment and looking at impacts on their cognitive performance and at the same time at mood. And in those intervention trials, um, the evidence for a direct uh, effect in relation to the um, supplementation um, was limited. But when we then looked at the relationship between those who responded and the change in their omega-3 index, or at least the levels of these important long-chain omega-3s, particularly DHA in the red blood cells, then we found uh, quite strong um, uh, associations. So we were seeing significant improvements in, um, in attention and, and learning capabilities with the children with ADHD and also in the um, elderly people with the mild cognitive impairment when we related change in performance to the increase in the DHA level in the red blood cells. So clearly um, we need to have this sort of measure incorporated into our research to be able to better define the benefits that can be achieved. And we also need to um, uh, then quantify as best we can the relationship between the increases in um, the long-chain omega-3s in the uh, blood biomarker and the uh, level of benefit um, or, or risk, uh, as the case may be, as has been done, as I said, uh, over 10 years ago now in relation to cardiovascular health. And it's interesting um, that the evidence uh, uh, that's been derived more recently from clinical trials to um, try to better define whether or not uh, omega-3 supplementation is going to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease or, or, uh, or mortality, particularly from coronary heart disease. Unfortunately, the uh, results of recent trials have been relatively inconclusive. Um, but in none of those cases 
has there been a, a measure of this omega-3 index, let alone any attempt to actually test the original concept. And that is that if people, if a population increase their omega-3 index above this level of 8%, whether indeed that actually uh, reduces cardiovascular morbidity or mortality. It's never been tested. So it's an important concept. Uh, it's still out there. And um, I think uh, uh, there's probably more confusion thrown into the picture by um, um, a, a recent uh, publication um, uh, supported by the Heart Foundation suggesting that because um, there's no further evidence in recent times to support the benefits of omega-3 supplementation from these supplementation trials in reducing um, the risk of coronary heart disease, that therefore um, we shouldn't be um, bothering with uh, supplements. Uh, we should just be going with the recommendation to eat more fish because the, the long-standing evidence for benefits of uh, seafood consumption um, certainly hasn't been in any way um, uh, challenged or undermined. Well, I'm not sure that that's uh, really the way forward. Um, not everybody has accessibility uh, to um, oily fish that will deliver the levels of omega-3s that we require. And um, in some cases, uh, taking a fish oil supplement uh, could be a, a very cost-effective alternative. But at the end of the day, whether you're consuming fish or taking a supplement, it would be helpful to actually know what your omega-3 status is, whether you're getting up to the sort of levels that might be regarded as consistent with uh, good cardiovascular health or with other aspects of, of health. And remember, we're not looking at omega-3 supplementation um, primarily to treat a, a disease. Um, it is a nutrient. It's uh, an essential nutrient. It's part of our diet. Um, it's going to deliver health benefits and help us to maintain good health and prevent disease. And we should be looking at it with that focus and the research uh, should be aimed at that objective. Uh, but unfortunately, um, that's a, a major challenge, particularly to address in short-term controlled clinical trials. And we know that this is one of the biggest challenges in providing the kind of evidence that's been uh, uh, used to um, substantiate benefits of drugs to talking about nutrients, components of our diet. Mm -hmm. And whilst these are very important bioactive nutrients, they, they are there as an integral part of our diet for, uh, to deliver a health benefit. We indeed have um, um, government-approved uh, recommendations from the NH and MRC as to how much we should be consuming each day. But once again, I would emphasise that those recommendations are targeting population and uh, we've got to appreciate that there's a good deal of variability between individuals. And that's why I think it would be particularly useful to introduce a biomarker that can really 
help us to be able to confirm uh, a, an individual's omega-3 status. Yeah, I love that idea. And certainly as a health practitioner, it'll really help us um, personalise the prescription of supplementation, which I think is really, really important. Um, I wanted to actually ask you, um, going back to the comment you made about uh, regarding the Health Foundation recommendations for oily fish consumption, I feel the challenge that we have in Australia is that we don't have access to wild-caught fish, which is obviously the best form of fish to consume because it has the the right ratio of omega-3 and is low in omega-6. So how does the Heart Foundation avoid that, um, I guess, issue and try to take us away from supplementation when we perhaps can't access the right fish to consume? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> Getting omega-3s from fish, uh, particularly in Australia, has been a, a, a challenge because mm. a, a lot of our um, uh, fish um, uh, has relatively low oil content and it's an excellent source of protein and uh, other very important nutrients um, for um, uh, our regular diet. And uh, uh, But as far as delivery of omega-3s goes, um, uh, it's <clears throat> possibly not as good a source. Uh, the typical um, levels of, of fish consumed in Australia, <coughs> pardon me, as the types of fish that uh, would be would have been traditionally consumed in uh, northern Europe, for example, um, and uh, of course the Japanese, who have a high consumption of oily fish and also have very high omega three uh, levels intake and status. Um, have recognised the importance of uh, tuna and, and salmon and other oily fish and our consumption of those is increasing. And as you point out, um, uh, much of that fish now is being farmed. Um, yeah. And I think um, aquaculture uh, is an extremely important uh, industry uh, for us um, and we need though to ensure that the omega-3 requirements are actually able to be delivered from the, the farmed fish. Um, our colleagues at CSIRO in um, uh, Hobart uh, showed quite uh, a number of years ago that um, farmed fish wasn't necessarily lower in omega-3 content than the uh, wild fish equivalent. Uh, there's a lot of seasonal variability in the omega-3 content of wild fish. But basically with the farm fish, once again, it depends on what they're being fed. And these days we find that uh, um, in aquaculture, uh, sometimes um, the diet is being changed so that the uh, fish are being reared on uh, a diet that has a lower basal omega-3 content. So the, the um, fish are, are possibly likely to wind up with lower omega-3 levels. That's another whole issue in itself as to, yeah, to including how, the hormones how they're getting optimize fed. aquaculture to deliver um, fish that's going to have the maximal benefit for the um, human diet. Uh, but one thing we do know um, is that, uh, uh, and despite uh, um, some recent concern about variability in omega-3 content of um, fish oils, um, most fish oils contain and, and deliver a, a consistent uh, amount of the long chain omega-3s. Um, 
So this is a, a viable alternative, uh, and I think that needs to be taken into consideration. Yes, yeah, certainly. And I, I'm a big fan of fish oil supplementation, but I would like to talk about um, the difference in quality. You know, you see on the supermarket shelf 400 capsules for $12, um, and then certainly we look at practitioner-only brands, which is what we recommend here at The Natural Nutritionist. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that about the importance of quality supplementation. Well, I've looked at a lot of different brands and uh, oils and products and prices over the years. And um, uh, I think uh, probably more important than the distinctions that uh, marketing people try to draw between products is the actual composition of the, the oil, where it's been sourced from and the relative proportions of EPA and DHA. And um, one might argue on the basis of existing evidence that uh, one omega-3 uh, uh, might be better than another. Um, and uh, I've found from the research that uh, we've conducted over the years, um, predominantly with tuna fish oil, which is a rich source of DHA with a lower level of EPA in, that this has been very effective. And I think we can attribute a lot of benefits potentially to the DHA in fish oil. And yet the oils that have been marketed uh, to the greatest extent in Australia um, have uh, come from uh, the North Atlantic waters in, in many cases. And uh, uh, they have a higher relative proportion of EPA to DHA. There are benefits of both long-chain omega-3s, um, but my personal preference in many cases would be to have a higher intake of DHA, and that also reflects what one would predominantly consume in eating fish because the flesh of fish um, contains predominantly DHA in the membrane phospholipids. So, um, yeah, I think uh, we need to look at uh, the content of the oil um, and there's been a lot of um, active marketing to promote krill oil um, versus fish oil and yet when one looks at the um, this measure of omega-3s, uh, omega-3 status in red blood cells, um, there's virtually no difference as far as I can see uh, and as, uh, as far as the most recent evidence indicates between the long-term effects of consuming um, uh, oils from either fish or krill, um, provided they're containing an equivalent amount of um, EPA and DHA. The ultimate um, increase in omega-3 status as reflected by the red blood cell concentration is virtually identical. That's a really interesting point. Um, and it's also the same position uh, reported uh, uh, a good many years ago when um, the omega-3 index was first used to assess the effects of regular fish consumption versus uh, fish oil uh, supplementation at the same omega-3 levels. The omega-3 index uh, rose over a period of uh, four months or so uh, in an almost identical fashion. So, um, you know, if one is looking at omega-3s uh, alone, then 
there is no benefit to be seen uh, in um, consuming fish versus uh, uh, obtaining the same level of omega-3s from a fish oil capsule. Uh, but, of course, we recognise that fish contains and is delivering um, uh, as a food a, a far wider range of nutrients other than the omega-3 fatty acids. Yeah, of course, absolutely. And what about, um, I know it's a hard question to answer when we aren't able to measure someone's index, but have you got some comments to make on dangerously high doses? Is, is that possible? Um, well, the recommendations that our government has adopted uh, and uh, uh, I guess have been recognised worldwide are um, uh, an upper limit of three grams of omega-3s. Um, and if you wanted me to translate that roughly into fish oil, the, the sort of uh, typical um, uh, basic um, uh, fish oil uh, that's encapsulated and sold in uh, our shops, in, in other words, not the concentrated form, but the, um, the standard triglyceride form is roughly 30% omega-3. So if we were talking about... Um, three grams of omega-3s uh, per day as an upper limit, then that would equate to about 10 one mil capsules of fish oil. Um, so uh, that uh, is a, a nominal um, upper limit for, mm. for safety. We know that in some instances, if people are susceptible to bleeding or are undergoing surgery, they might be advised um, to reduce their uh, intake of uh, fish oil or temporarily uh, cease that in much the same way as they uh, would be uh, recommended, you know, to stop taking aspirin if there was a, 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 an increased uh, heightened risk of bleeding. There's no evidence to indicate that there's any greater risk with uh, omega-3s than there is with a, 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 um, a single tablet of aspirin. So... Uh, and as, of course, we know, there's a beneficial effect there in, in terms of helping to prevent uh, blood clotting as a cardiovascular risk. Um, there are different levels of intake in different populations uh, throughout the world. And in some cases, um, we know that the intake has been higher than that level. But uh, I think uh, that's uh, a fairly high upper target and there are very few populations uh, that um, would be within 10% um, uh, of, uh, of that level. Um, so for an individual to have an extremely high intake that will put them at risk, um, that's unlikely to be the case. Um, except, uh, of course, for people who um, have been um, prescribed higher levels of omega-3s by their doctor. And this certainly happens in some instances of treating rheumatoid arthritis where intakes um, above, uh, at or above 10 grams a day have been recommended. Or even the recommendations to treat high levels of triglycerides, um, a physician might recommend uh, a um, intake higher than 3 grams per day. But for the um, typical consumer wanting to take omega-3s to optimise their health and reduce risk of, uh, of disease, then um, I think the recommendations that have been made by um, 
not only um, the Hart Foundation initially, but uh, by other authorities throughout the world and also by the NHMRC, um, tend to range between about 250 to 500 milligrams per day. And um, that is, I guess, um, uh, somewhere between one or two standard capsules of um, official, but bearing in mind uh, that um, people will be consuming a certain amount of long-chain omega-3s from other sources in their diet, then they may or may not require any level of additional supplementation. Certainly if they follow the Heart Foundation recommendations to eat an appropriate amount of oily fish, they should be able to achieve the um, desired uh, uh, level. But uh, as I said, it varies with individuals and at this stage um, the omega-3 status of individuals is not being assessed on a general basis. Mm. And so you're saying that um, three grams is perhaps, you know, a conservative recommendation but some GPs might be rec- uh, recommending upwards of 10 grams a day. What, what would be the dangers of... of- I'm not sure that GPs are doing that. Okay. I do know that uh, in one or two cases, uh, rheumatologists have been recommending higher levels of supplementation um, and uh, that's certainly been the case um, with uh, uh, Dr Cleland and uh, colleagues uh, in Adelaide who've, I think, had uh, significant uh, uh, success with uh, management of um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis with high levels of omega-3 supplementation. But this is treating and managing a... uh, specific um, uh, disease state and uh, not what we really want to focus on, which is how to um, optimise the the health of the community. Yeah, absolutely. I still find it really interesting, though, I think, in terms of what's possible. I, I guess we need the research to support it first. <laughs> when I talk about the omega-3 um, levels and... Um, Uh, assessing the omega-3 index as a measure of uh, health status. And as I said, I think we need to look more closely at that and see uh, just how readily that can be adopted. But uh, as a guide, um, with an appropriate uh, level of omega-3 intake, in other words, consistent with the dietary recommendations, it's not hard to get the the omega-3 index up uh, above 6% and uh, toward um, that target of 8% and over. But where studies have been done with um, um, uh, comparison of uh, um, vegan diets where people are consuming omega-3s from plant sources, and there we're talking about the short-chain omega-3 alpha-linolenic acid, which is a precursor of these long-chain omega-3s but is poorly converted through to them um, in humans. So if that is the sole source of alpha-linolenic acid, it it might actually uh, uh, result in some limitation in the omega-3 status. And in fact, in the few examples where the omega-3 index is being measured, I quoting one example from um, uh, over 30 years ago, uh, a comparison between 
vegans and controls, uh, their omega-3 index, the um, match controls had an omega-3 index in this particular study of 6%. The vegans were down at 2%. So it does raise some issues about the adequacy of a uh, vegan diet um, without long-chain omega-3s. And then I guess that would also raise the question of um, just how important uh, this omega-3 index as a measure of status is. So we still do have further questions to address there, but uh, I think it's very important for consumers to recognise that the omega-3s that we're talking about in uh, um, fish oil or krill oil supplementary capsules um, are the long-chain omega-3s and they differ from the alpha-linolenic acid that's present in plant sources. Now, having said that, um, CSIRO have uh, developed and patented uh, new um, uh, plant sources um, of long-chain omega-3s. So it will be possible in the future to actually obtain um, omega-3s from um, uh, uh, plant sources, the long chain omega-3s directly. But um, that's another story. <laughs> that is another topic altogether, although very interesting. It's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. And I think um, obviously exciting times for research. And I look forward to um, seeing more about the omega index and, and certainly being able to use that in, in our clinic. Thanks, Steph. It's been great to speak to you, Peter. I'll talk to you again soon. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.